Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, I am on the phone with Ren Butler. Ren Butler has a lifelong interest in new forms of self-exploration and understanding that began as a young person in the 1960s when he was exposed to Jungian depth psychology and gestalt by friends of his parents. Followed by a BA in English and Religious Studies from the University of Alberta, he lived at the Esalen Institute in California for two and a half years, where he became deeply immersed in the transpersonal psychology of Stanislav Grof and the emerging archetypal astrology of Richard Tarnas. He completed training as a holotropic breathwork facilitator with Stan Grof and Christina Grof and has facilitated many workshops in Victoria, Canada. Today, I am holding his book in my hands. It's called Pathways to Wholeness, Archetypal Astrology, and the Transpersonal Journey. So that's very interesting because a lot of people consider astrology as a learning of their, as an understanding of their personal history. And now you are speaking about archetypes and a transpersonal journey. Could you get into that, please? Sure, and it's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Um, I think the probably the, one of the most interesting areas that Tarnas has opened up with his approach to astrology uh, comes from his work with Stanislav Grof. Um, many, many of your listeners will be familiar with Grof's work as one of the founders of transpersonal psychology and probably the chief theoretician in transpersonal psychology and also in um, 
So we definitely have, it seems to me, a crisis of meaning. So it's very poignant that these particular studies would come about at this time. Do you see that as a, a, a do you see that as guided by the planets and the archetypes? Yes, I I certainly do. I you know, I'm actually getting the feeling more and more of the some kind of universal consciousness or anima mundi uh, that is guiding and watching humanity's every step and not only humanity but every single life form and every particle in the, the universe or the multiverse. I think it's astounding that this past week uh, the spacecraft that has flown by Pluto has seen a giant heart on on the planet Pluto, the dwarf planet Pluto, and it's about it. I mean, it looks to me like about a third of the size of the face of Pluto, and it's incredibly symmetrical. And I think the probability of that happening is just pretty well zero without some kind of uh, archetypal form behind it. I, I think of that heart on Pluto as, as comparable to 2001, a space odyssey. Huh. It, it, you know, it, it, like it was there all, it's been there for a long time, we assume. And only now, with our technology reaching a certain quantum leap, have we been able to see it this past week. And um, I, I think it, it says a lot archetypally. Well, this is very interesting because, uh, uh, in a personal way, because uh, uh, we tried to record this uh, interview a couple of days ago, and uh, we were interrupted by a very uh, heavy hailstorm here in Santa Fe. And as soon as I hung up the phone from you, uh, I opened my... um, I opened my internet and there was this picture of Pluto and uh, I was I was blown away by the, the by the instant consequences the, the uh, serendipity that that was happening and when you were talking I was thinking we're in a world a quantum world and even if we as humans took the picture, the planet herself reflected back what she wanted to say. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I, I think that, uh, you know, our modern industrial civilization, which is an outgrowth of the uh, scientific revolution, which initiated in the early, you know, early, early 17th century by Descartes and Bacon, Mm-hmm. has given us many things, and um, we can certainly, we, we will be preserving the good side of 
so uh, in some way, since Descartes, we have been walking around thinking that we have these enormous objects on top of our heads, meaning I'm talking the stars and the galaxies, and we're not connected. And uh, they're just these, these huge giants out there who don't care about us. And now, Groff Tarnas and you come along and say that the... Uh, the transits, the archetypes, the planets are the unexpected Rosetta Stone of psychology. Could you speak to that? Yes. Uh, in the Newtonian Cartesian view of the universe, which has dominated Western culture for the last 300 years, um, there is no consciousness outside of the human brain. There is no higher consciousness outside of the human brain. And... Uh, I was wondering if you could describe what archetypal astrology is. and so on. 
Mm-hmm. And it seems to suggest to me and to many others already that, of colleagues that I've been talking with that this is a, a moment when they, you know, the God and Goddess are really uh, winking to us and saying, you know, congratulations, you've made it this far now. You know, feel comfortable facing the plutonic layers of the psyche. It's actually a safe and loving process. Groff, interestingly, in, in some of his books, talks about this, that the, there's a part of the inner psycho-spiritual opening process or the death-rebirth struggle that can feel quite brutal. It's, it's very intense. There's a little activation of very powerful energies. People in sessions can release a lot of aggression and, and permanently decrease or eliminate its effects in their everyday lives. There can be uh, scatological experiences, you know, confrontation with uh, the byproducts of biological life and, and uh, you know, projectile vomiting and so on. People are familiar with this from ayahuasca journey. Demonic experiences, um, also uh, sadomasochistic uh, energies, which are also connected with Pluto, and, and as finally pyrocatharsis, which is passing through purifying fire. Mm-hmm. Those are the major five themes related to Pluto, uh, and all of, all of them within the context of a powerful death-rebirth process and a sense of volcanic purging of old structures and old traumas and old blocked energies um, out of the system, allowing fresh, pristine, and ecstatic divine energies to come into the psyche and reorganize the psyche in a healthy way. So, you know, it's, it's a beautiful moment. Um, I think that, that the heart on Pluto will be looked at as one of the great thresholds in human history. Could you um, relate this to the perinatal stages that Stanislas Groff came up with, and perhaps uh, tell us what stage you imagine this uh, this this message from Pluto would represent. Yes, uh, one of Groff's uh, discoveries, and he he personally conducted over four thousand LSD sessions with voluntary uh, program with voluntary. Uh, and over his career and had access to the records of 2,000 more uh, sessions. And out of this, he was able to extrapolate what he calls an expanded cartography of the human psyche. And one of the important elements that he was able to uh, come up with, um, which was not really articulated in any other psychological schools, was the perinatal layer of the psyche. Peri means surrounding, and natal, of course, birth. Jung was aware of the death-rebirth archetype, and uh, but not, not the degree of importance which it, it has 
studied the, the aspects or transits that uh, came together so that uh, Groff and Tarnas could have come together uh, at Esalen and come up with this entire language and completed each other in that? I think a lot of the most exciting discoveries that they made and also Tarnas, uh, you know, beginning to formulate his uh, connection of Uranus with the archetype Prometheus. He felt Uranus was misnamed and that uh, Uranus archetype corresponds more with um, the mythological figure Prometheus than me, who was a rebel, hipster rebel, who gave soul fire and gave it to humanity rather than the, the sort of static tyrant father figure Urano, happened in uh, around 1976 um, during the Jupiter-Uranus opposition. I know they were in dialogue before that, but I think 1976 was kind of a, one of the crowning moments in the process. And Jupiter-Uranus alignments, uh, especially the conjunctions and oppositions, Tarnas has found are, are the most uh, sort of dramatic and uh, vivid uh, transits in terms of their, their cultural expression. He found the most remarkable and consistent synchronicities with Jupiter-Uranus alignments going back through history. So, uh, and I would say that you know the mid-70s in general still had the afterglow of the 60s of that powerful Uranus-Pluto conjunction that happened from 1960 to 72. We were still in afterglow right up until, I would say, New Year's Day 1980 when something dramatic seems to have kind of changed and we were kind of more into the Saturn-Pluto conjunction of the early 80s and the Reagan era later that year, Lenin assassination and so on. Yeah, things got boring. So, yes, uh, Ren, you, you have a vast body of work um, connecting connecting um, archetypal astrology or studies and uh, your holotropic breathwork. You describe in your book many of your sessions. that the universe was somehow 
So you mentioned Timothy Leary. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of the fact that uh, Timothy was very, um, very studied uh, astrology very deeply, and uh, had his uh, his own system of um, of astrology that he um, he mixed together with his um, knowledge of psychology. Um, what did you find in terms of Timothy Leary? Well, actually, well, I I don't have his chart in front of me, so I can't tell you anything about his chart per se. And I'm not that familiar with his uh, use of astrology. But we know that Jung was deeply immersed in astrology for the final decade of his life, at least, and. Um, actually looking at the charts of every one of his patients before, you know, working with them and, and uh, as an adjunct to the, the, the counseling and the self-exploration through dream work. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Groff considers archetypal astrology a Rosetta Stone. Yes. Thank you. 
shattering through the sense that you're in a hopeless situation that you can't change. But Groff found that full surrender to that archetypal experience that sometimes people can identify with being in hell from various cultures, and just total surrender into that experience consumes it from the system and allows the process to move to the next stage. And uh, our approach to depression in this society is um, really kind of the exactly wrong way from what should be happening. Um, we To suppress the symptoms with antidepressants just keeps people kind of stuck in a halfway state and kind of undigested state. Um, whereas if people are encouraged to just lie down and every day feel their feelings, to let themselves consciously suffer and to make time for that, um, you know, maybe someone could sit there and hold their hand uh, while they're going through it. That automatically consumes it from the system. So, and this is more likely to, to come up during Saturn transit. So it can be very helpful to know what the dominant transits are for understanding our own process and also for giving support to other people. When you uh, give a holotropic uh, workshop, uh, do you study the transits to see what would be the best day for you to do that? Yes. <laughs> It's yeah. almost impossible not to look at the transit right. for anything important once you've gotten interested in astrology. But sometimes, you know, I, I have to take one of my three choices because of other factors. And we're also doing a global holotropic breathwork day once a year in the spring. And it's, I think now it's going to be the second Saturday in April. So, uh, or maybe they'll do it the third sometimes, the third Saturday in April. So, but yes, and there are no dangerous transits per se. So that's not really a factor, but it just, you know, we want people to, to have good experiences and to feel that they had a worthwhile amount of processing for the, the time that they spent. Every transit is, is valuable for self-exploration, though, and a lot of the negative effects and problematic effects of different archetypal energies as they're expressed in our social lives are completely turned around to be healing when they're experienced in our inner process. So to act out aggression in at work or in our relationships just uh, kind of adds to the problem and creates karmic cause and effect situations where to express the same aggression in a session releases it and uh, doesn't hurt anybody. And, and the same goes for so many other of the shadow qualities of the human psyche. Can you tell us some uh, uh, concrete uh, stories about how you've seen uh, archetypal astrology really unlock a person from their suffering? Well, uh, one, one of my own sessions comes to mind, and it was uh, during the great Jupiter-Uranus-Neptune conjunction of, uh, of uh, the end of 19. 
high points was 96, 97. I don't know if people remember that, but so many amazing things happened. Um, I think the Lilith Fair tour was going on, was, uh, led by Sarah McLaughlin. It was the, the largest concert uh, in, in history, and it was all women. It was an incredible time for, for awakening of the feminine. Many people started having spontaneous goddess imagery in their sessions. Ayahuasca really took, took off and became just such a powerful, positive force mm. in, in Western civilization during that, that great uh, Uranus-Neptune conjunction. Um, there were also some very powerful movies right around then. Uh, right afterwards was The Truman Show, which was a great movie about the kind of awakening out of the the samsara or the maya mm-hmm. and out into the real uh, world. Right. Um, Contact, Jodie Foster, was a great movie about spiritual transcendence and reunion with the divine. Um, the Game with Michael Douglas, amazing movie, has that Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, really an amazing movie. So anyway, um, I knew that those transits were going to be exciting, and I went down to the Cycles and Symbols Conference mm-hmm. in San Francisco, and um, it was a, a great experience, but I, I got sick, uh, unfortunately, halfway through the conference, and uh, I was under a fair amount of stress because I was planning to do a, a major uh, session of my own. went ahead with that uh, a few days after the conference, and after about, I don't know, three hours of fairly nondescript but intense suffering and, and a, a sense of uh, being completely uh, disconnected with my sitters at one point, through no fault of their own, but I just had a feeling that the session was, dis- was derailing and I was basically totally isolated. All of a sudden, I had this uh, image of, mother figure rising up and filling the experiential field and I had a, a part of the image was this uh, there were all of humanity was depicted by all these people who were dying of spiritual thirst mm-hmm. their eyes were turned skyward and their mouths were open and they were just like dying and this great mother figure was opening this gate some kind of a water reservoir and the water was just beginning to flow over the top of it down towards the, the hungry mouth below and I had the feeling that the, the great mother goddess archetype was returning in human history and that she had been there all along as Tarnas uh, phrased it uh, that very same week actually in the Cycles and Symbols Conference um, patriarchy is the 5,000 years Right. That, that the, the mother goddess archetype and the, the god, you know, the male and the female aspects of the divine are just personas of one formless consciousness. And they, they never work against each other. They, they are always cooperating with each other. There's no competition at that level. And that the mother goddess receded in many ways from at least the main 
What a beautiful experience. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. Now I'm wondering, um, how do you relate to the earth as our mother? Thank you. 
long history of non-ordinary states. The Greek, the Hellenistic civilization, and and onto the Roman civilization for 1,900 years had at Eleusis a day's walk from Athens, an incredible um, religious institution called the Eleusinian Mysteries, and it was overseen by uh, priestesses and uh, and, and uh, families uh, that were that were uh, dedicated to to that site, and uh, it was devoted to the goddess Demeter. The Roman name was Ceres, and uh, it was basically Demeter and Persephone, uh, the mother and daughter. Interestingly, um, for and and the, the worship of Demeter and Persephone was for the Greeks and the Romans the most popular of all the gods and goddesses. They had many, but Demeter and Persephone were the most popular of all, the most widespread. Uh, she became Ceres for the Romans, and that's the root of our word, cereal. And so the mother goddess gives us grain, and um, she has to give her daughter up to the underworld during the winter time, and then in the spring she's reborn and reunited with the mother. And for the, in the Christian era, it was father and son, so very interesting. It was mother and daughter for 2,000 years, and then, and then father and son in the mainstream. And I think we're moving now into a time when it will be mother, father, and daughter, son. It will be every, everybody. But the, the uh, Elizabethan mysteries, we are virtually certain now used ergot, which is a naturally occurring form of LSD. And um, there's a great book, The Road to Elusis, which if anyone wants to pick it up, uh, used on Amazon. And we know that people went through life-changing experiences at Eleusis, and uh, many of the giants of, of Greek and Roman culture attested to their life-changing experiences at Eleusis or one of the other mystery sites around the Mediterranean. There were many, and it, we're virtually certain now that they were using ergot. There were, was also a lot of use of um, psychedelic mushrooms in ancient Greece, and I brought me to the point that the role of the Lucis in the formation of Greek culture and thus the entire Western civilization has yet to be uh, acknowledged. And so the quantum leap in consciousness and science and medicine, poetry, uh, drama um, that happened in the, for the Greek civilization that gave birth to Western civilization, I believe really was partially mediated by this responsible use and ritual use of uh, psychedelic substances. And um, we, can re we can turn back and, and reintegrate some of these resources from our history, uh, that, and it will have a very enriching effect on, on our civilization. And to potentially help us to resolve some of the pressing and urgent uh, environmental problems that we have right now. Bren, we've come around to the end of our conversation, and um, I just want to ask you briefly 
what would you like to say in closing? Well, I would like to <laughs> mention again that heart on Pluto. I think that uh, we have reached a point where the, the, the divine drama of our world has reached a, a maximum thickening of the plot. <laughs> mm. Yes, that was good that we had a clear connection. And I want to thank you very, very much for your work and your presence on Future Primitive. Thank you very much. I, I admire what you're doing. Congratulations and good luck. Thank you, Rand. <laughs>